God only because we were primitive and we needed a way to deal with the things we didn't understand about this world. But now that science, technology has advanced to a point that we can understand this world about us, the earth goes around the sun, we know the far reaches of the universe, there's no reason for God. Man has it in his own power to be able to overcome and find his own fulfillment. And therefore, what Nietzsche really did here is declare if you take the philosophies of the Enlightenment, 17th, 18th century, to its furthest conclusion that, yes, indeed, you don't need God. There's no point for God. And if there's no point for God, not just the Christian God, but all gods are made up, they're all put in the same um, basket and all can be thrown out with the baby water because we have our own cells. Okay? So if you take that even further, if we don't need God to provide us with meaning, um, the onus falls on us to provide our own meanings. I think a lot of us live in that space right now. It is up to me to determine what I desire to do. I am the author of my future, of my, of my future fulfillment, what I find joy, how I identify, what I feel like is happy for myself. That is what I can pursue. doesn't matter what happiness for other people. I need to find what's happy for myself. What is my life fulfilled? I got to find that. Now, uh, uh, this, this Truman, he says, in killing God, you take on the responsibility, in fact, the terrifying responsibility of being God yourself, of becoming the author of your own knowledge and your own ethics. Now, without some eternal being to impose upon us um, some uh, eternal purpose, where are we left today? Think about it, right? We are living for the moment. And a lot of us actually maybe live by that, by that mantra, by the moment, live in the moment, carpe diem, right? Let's go on these vacations that have amazing experiences. Let's eat good food every day. Why is Instagram so popular? Because we get to live vicariously through everyone's, what? What they get to eat, what they wear, where they go. It's all about where people are doing, experiencing right now. Right now, what you're exploring, what you're enjoying, that is what is most important. Now, where does that get us? In 2022 Monster.com survey says 74% of the Gen Z ranked purpose ahead of paycheck in their main motivator for work. Okay, so we, for many of us, uh, we don't want to just collect a paycheck. We want to enjoy what we're doing. We've even heard um, Confucius say, you know, if you find something that you enjoy doing, you'll never work a day in your life. And we might even love that. It's Confucius, not the Bible, not Christianity, Confucius. 2017 Lovell Coors Change Generation Port, they quote say, for the first time, talking about Gen Z, we see a generation prioritizing purpose in the work. Now, what they also find, which I find interesting, and it kind of makes sense, is that the Gen Z seeks greater mental health supports. That's what they say, quote, with rising rates of anxiety and depression among youth, there's an emphasis placed on mental health 
by Gen Z. Now let's put it all together. If God is dead, if in fact he doesn't exist, it was just a created thing that humans made up, we are left to create our own meaning. But when we realize and we focus just on our own self-satisfaction, if we only create meaning based upon our little sphere, it will never be big enough to fill the hole that we are created for by God and will always continue to be left unsatisfied. In 2017, Columbia University study found from 2005 to 2015, depression increased, especially among those ages 12 and 17, where it increased from 8.7% 2005 to 12.7% 2015. We had this thing, 2020, that didn't quite help the situation. Boston University did a recent research, found depression among adults in U.S. tripled in early 2020 because of the pandemic. 8.5% to 27.8%. Over a quarter of adults in U.S. suffered depression. The next year, it rose even more to 32.8%. Nearly one in three Americans suffer from depression. So Christians, if America is a Christian world, is slowly not becoming that, but Christians are not immune. So what are we to do here? You know, as, as the, the, the prevailing thought back then with the Enlightenment, Nietzsche was saying that man can conquer it all, that we can, as long as we advance in science, technology, eventually we'll find this joy, this fulfillment, this peace, this harmony. But the world we live in now is far more advanced than any other time in civilization, and yet is the most oppressed time we've ever dealt with. So it's, it's something's not adding up. It's not adding up. The problem with killing God, or put it another way, when we live life and seek purpose apart from God, we will inevitably find that, yes, that deep hole inside will never be fulfilled because it was meant to be filled by the eternal God. Now, all of us are searching for some type of joy, some type of passion, some type of um, purpose in our life that makes us feel alive. And thankfully today, in this text that, we, that PC just read, um, Jesus addresses this very thing, okay? So when we find our identity in Christ, we'll find joy even in this world. Okay, we're looking for joy, but it's only when we find our identity in Christ will we find joy in this world. Now, before I dig too much deeper, let me just briefly go into the context of John 17. We're in the Gospel of John. A few months ago, PJ preached upon the series, I Am Statements of Jesus. And really, in a quick nutshell, please listen. If you, if you missed it, if you're new, go watch it on YouTube. But just in a sentence... Um, it basically is just revealing Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is not just any ordinary man. He is God, man. He is borrowing, or you can even say fulfilling the I am of God from the Old Testament, saying that I am God in the Old Testament. Yes, I am as well. Um, we, we see from the very first 
uh, chapter in John 1, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later we read later on that the Word came down and dwelt among men. So we know that that is Jesus. So Jesus is God. And then we read um, the purpose of the book in 2030. But these are written so that you may believe that what? Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, equating him with God. He is God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. All right, so this whole book as a whole is to help us see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. He is the chosen one. He is the one come to deliver us the Savior. Now, what's interesting about this section here is from John 13 and 17, the pace just comes to a screeching halt because the author presumably wants us to really understand what happened on that last night before he got betrayed. 13 through 17 details the very last supper Jesus had with his disciples. Okay? Um, four, five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, five chapters. And this chapter here, chapter 17, is titled The High Priestly Prayer. Many pastors love this. Many Christians love this. It is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. We have the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, teach us how we pray, right? But here, we have a whole chapter filled with this amazing prayer that Jesus prays in the presence of his disciples right before he knows that he's going to be betrayed and eventually be crucified, die, and leave his disciples. His disciples still don't quite understand what's going on because how can someone go to his death and lead us? That doesn't make sense because we've never seen anyone really come back to life, even though they kind of did if they were seeing what Jesus was doing, but they still didn't fully understand. And so what does Jesus pray in their presence to help them, to encourage them? This prayer. And I'm going to skip to, obviously, verse, verse 13. Um, I, I definitely don't have time to go over this entire chapter. There's so much here. But in verse 13, he says, um, I'm coming to you so we know that he's leaving right he's talking to the father in heaven and these things i speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves this idea joy joy ought to be the defining factor of what it means to continue on uh, jesus's work to be a follower of jesus and having joy should be together. But obviously, if, if, if Jesus is praying this, he knows that this is going to be a hard thing, right? There, there, there's this um, tension between living in this world, dealing with the struggles of this world, and having this eternal joy. And so, therefore, Jesus prays for joy because he knows exactly what we're going to struggle with. Now, a quick, like, uh, Concordance study of joy. Concordance, you just type in joy in some program and you just look at all the different occurrences, all the different um, uses it is in the Bible. Um, you could even do the Greek to even get more specific. Um, but um, just a summary, the, 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 ver the verb rejoice 
to be joyful occurs in the New Testament 72 times. The noun joy, um, the Greek I'll just mention because we know someone named Kara, right, joy, it occurs 60 times, total of 132 times. The New Testament is saturated with joy. Some theologians said that the New Testament is a book of joy. Joy is the key characteristic of being Christian. And when you read through the Gospels, we see Jesus speak of the kingdom of God as one full of joy and rejoicing. I can't go through all 132 of them, but I just want to uh, quickly go through Luke 15, just, just really quickly. Luke 15 is that triple parable of, of the lost sheep, the lost son, the prodigal son. Okay? He speaks these three parables right in a row, and listen what he says at the very end when they find those three respective things. Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Rejoice with me, again, that verb, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then the prodigal son who comes and he's speaking to the elder son who didn't want to come in to rejoice and celebrate. The father says to the older son, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad to rejoice for this. Your brother was dead and is alive, and he, is, he was lost and is found. He speaks these parables to talk about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And each time he ends with joy, rejoice, rejoice. And even there'll be more rejoicing in heaven. Heaven is filled with rejoicing. As much as you are joyful, there's going to be even more rejoicing in heaven. Do you find joy in this world? If a lot of newcomers come, are you finding joy at NCF, at this church? When you leave, do you say, wow, that was a joyous place. I really was able to get the sense of joy. In your own lives, are you finding joy in your life? Regardless if you like your job or not, regardless if you're in a happy marriage or not, regardless if your kids are growing up well, regardless if you are heading anywhere in life, that is inconsequential, we'll see, for the joy that he's talking about here. It's not based upon the circumstances. Do you have joy in your life? And I think if we're honest, Whereas maybe we do have joy here and there, we have these moments, we do struggle with this here and there. Or maybe we forgot. Maybe we've been kind of doing this, not low, but not high, just a stoic, just even-keeled life that we've been living, just, just surviving. We're just surviving. Well, thankfully, Christ knows exactly what we need. They call this the high priestly prayer because on our behalf, as our priest, as our sacrificial lamb, he prays exactly what we need for his joy. And what he says is, this joy can only be had when we find our identity in ourselves. The problem is, many of us, we get confused and we find our identity in the world. 
Notice what he says, that they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Then he says again, that was 14. Then again, he says it again, verse 16, almost exactly. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The double repetition. Whenever the Bible repeats itself, we need to, we should always listen, but we need to be like, oh, wait. God is perfect. He's not going to waste his words. Why is he repeating this? Why is he saying it over and over again? It's important because we are prone to forget that we are not of this world. At least those who follow Christ. Maybe you are of this world and are wondering, man, what is this joy he's talking about? Well, the only way to find this is once we find our identity apart from this world. The world as in not heavenly, the world as in opposed to God. Jesus is reminding them who they are. I think a lot of us sometimes forget that this world is not a good actor in looking out for our best interests. The world is belligerent to not only just Christians, but in fact all peoples. The world is not looking out for anyone, anyone's best interests. It uses words to maybe seem like it, but when you follow them to this ultimate conclusion, you'll find that it only leads to despair and destruction, as technology has proven to um, surmise. One of my favorite books of the Bible, some of you guys know this, is Ecclesiastes. I myself am a little bit dark, definitely myself, especially my younger years, struggle with a lot of depression. I had no idea as to what was the purpose of my life. I didn't want to go after money or um, power or anything. I, I just like, what was the point? I, I really struggled. One day, I, I was finally able to um, come to the Bible, and Ecclesiastes just like, whoa, this is it. Right? It, it, it just, I, I just really vibe with it. Let me, let me read this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. It just talks about the, the author is seeking his pleasure, thinking, seeking his joys in the world. And he's, he's, he's had the capacity, he's had the resources to experience it all. And this is what he says about his experiences. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. As we read Ecclesiastes, we understand that he was one of the richest kings of all Jerusalem, had everything at his disposal, and having experienced all that the world has to offer, he says it's all vanity, it's all a striving after the wind, it is but a breath in the wintertime, here and gone within a second. The key term, I don't want to leave you guys in this despair, is this term, under the sun. Under the sun is basically Nietzsche's God is dead. Nietzsche, uh, as Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Nietzsche is not original. Ecclesiastes here talks about what if the world had no God? What is this world under the sun? As in, what if there's nothing above the sun? What if there's no heavenly? What if there's no God? 
then is this all there is? Just toil, 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 and then you end up just dying for what? I get to enjoy all this and have to leave it to my foolish sons for what? What was the point of it? I can't even enjoy all the wealth that I have. Where can we find our meaning if there's no God? Nietzsche, it turns out, was a, by mistake a little bit of a prophet. He wrote that parable of the madman. And the last 11 years, he actually spent in incoherent madness, where he would sit in corners and drink his own urine. These are the ideas, the philosophies played out. When you find no greater meaning, humans, in our limited capacities, will always fail in finding meaning that is greater and big enough to fill what we are created for. Now, um, again, Jesus says, the world has hated them. Early in chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. How many of us here try not to hate, have the world hate you? How many of us here have bought into the idea that we can be friends with the world? And we talk about the world not as individual people, okay? Yes, for individual people, we are called to go to them. But as a whole, the ideologies of this world, the values that the world has propped up, if we are trying to befriend with those, or we're trying to coincide with those, partner with those, then we're not with Christ, we're with the world. Because here it says, the world hates Jesus, and the world will hate you because of my words. But if the world doesn't hate you, then which side are you on? And to be honest, and as we saw, if, if, and if you continue your own lives, you will see that if you identify with the world, you will never find true everlasting joy. You will never find this joy fulfilled that Christ has to offer. Therefore, we have to find our identity in Christ, and that is when you'll find Christ fulfilled in yourself. This, this word make full um, or fulfilled means to make full, means to complete. So Jesus, his joy is this filled joy, is complete joy, not lacking. Um, but that word fulfilled is also used uh, when Jesus says that he has come not to abolish the law and the scriptures, the prophets, the scriptures and the prophets, but, or the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus, in all senses, is this completion, this fulfillness, right? The I am statements, again, um, you can't get away from them because this is John. If you really think about why he's even saying that, he's taking all these Old Testament ideas of who God is and saying, look, I am the fulfillment of them. Take the easiest one is uh, the bread of life, right? God provided the Israelites uh, manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. But, and this is what actually says about it. And the people of Israel gathered in Exodus 16, some more, some less. But when they measured it with Omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. It's great. On one side, no one's wasting. On the other side, everyone has just enough. It's perfect. It's a perfect provision. 
right? I was just at a wedding last night, and man, the, in order to make sure that that one person that eats a lot is filled, everyone had to have this massive plate. So there was so much food wasted. Yeah, it was a lot, but you feel this guiltiness because it was like, wow, we're just throwing away all this good food. Now, that idea is recapitulated. It's, it's, it's increased. It's fulfilled in Jesus when he says, I am the bread of life. And this is what he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he's not talking about physical hunger. But this spiritual hunger, this idea that, man, we're never satisfied. Being someone who was steeped in sin for a great part of my life, I know that sin never fills it. You always need the next thing. You always need that next hit. You always need to look at that next image. You always need that extra thing. It's never enough because it's never fully satisfied. You're always just that far away. So Christ is the complete fulfillment. He's the completeness. He's the fullness of joy. So what does it mean to find identity in Christ? Um, We say that a lot. I'm sure you've heard it. Um, It gives us a clue here. Verses 17 through 19. um, Jesus says, sanctify them. And then he says, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And again, so it's like the sandwich that they may be sanctified in truth. I kind of um, paraphrase there. But you have these two words, sanctify, and then as you sent them into the world. Sanctified literally means make holy. And then you could be like, okay, what, what does holy mean? Because I, I do feel like, um, especially in the non-Christian world, they get this holiness wrong. But even, I think, in this uh, church context, we could, we could get confused as what holiness really means. We can maybe think it's like this high level of goodness. Like someone who, like we have an image of someone who's holy, like someone who reads the Bible and never curses and never drinks or never smokes, oh, he's holy, right? That's not the, a biblical understanding, but that's maybe what it's saying. Like we have oh, he's holier than thou. Oh, my goodness. He's always looking better than other people, right? But that's a, not what we're saying here. Really or fundamentally, holy means set apart by God for his purposes. So even Things, non-living things, objects, can be holy. Like, if it was about, like, who is gooder than others or better, um, then you can't have objects, the temple, the tabernacle, which was holy, okay? Those things were set apart for only to be used for God and for his purposes. And he's saying here, you guys, or to the disciples, and by extension to all those who find them in Christ, you are set apart for a special purpose. You are not to be part of the world. We just established that. And you're to be set apart, taken specially to be used by God. Set apart as God is completely other. He is not like anything in this world. And what he does is he takes things for himself and says, this is also to be used for my purposes. Now, what is sandwiched in there? What, are, what is that purpose? Is this idea of sentness. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And this word sent is something um, pretty uh, 
holds dear to my heart because I'm a missionary. And really, if you take um, the, the, the word here, in Latin is missio, okay? And what, what word in English comes from that word? Just add an N at the end, mission, right? So to be sent is to be on mission. What are we being set apart for? What does it mean to be or find your identity in Christ? I have to be careful here. I'll say it. I'll qualify it. It's to be missionaries. Now, I was a missionary that went to China, across the other side of the world. It does not mean that. It doesn't mean that you got to go to some other country, third world country, whatever, learn some other language, learn some other culture. It's not that. Those missionaries are part of that, but that's not the fullness of what this means. Basically, it just means you are sent by God to do something for his purpose. What is that? John 6, we go back to John 6. Again, you've got to use the Bible to interpret the Bible, and it's always good to read before and after. In John 6, someone actually asked, what is the work of God? And this is what Jesus says in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, what is the work? That Jesus first leaves his place of comfort, uh, leaves the heavenly realms, enters into our lives, and reveals to us who God is and that he's a savior. And now he sends us to do the very same thing, to leave our comforts, to leave this world, the worldly ideas, and to share what Christ is about, who, that he is a savior. Romans 10, 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And who, how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In this Day and culture, that's a big no-no. Ooh, evangelize, ooh, preach the good news, ooh. Don't impose these, you know, uh, these ideas, these oppressive ideas upon others. They'll probably hate you. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's what Christ exactly says. If you're not finding fulfillment, finding joy in your life, have you been listening to the world too long? Where has that gotten you? More joy? Afraid to really live life as it really should be. To really experience why you were created. Have you ever seen God use you to bring someone to Christ? You will know the joy that God is talking about here. It is not based upon how eloquently you speak or how well you are prepared, but by the power of the Spirit and by the mystery of His grace that He uses a tool like us to be able to bring others into the kingdom is a joy like no other. I can tell you the world is not playing by the rules it doesn't want us to play by. It's shoving its ideology down our throats. Every single day, through our education system, through the media, through whatever, there is an agenda. Everyone has an agenda. Everyone, in one sense, is a missionary. Not necessarily a missionary of God, but a missionary for some agenda. Are we aware of 
Let us not be naive to think that not everyone has some type of agenda. Are we willing to be critical of the Bible, of the Word, and not critical of the world? Then we should check ourselves and figure out, all right, where am I really? Why am I so critical of what the Bible says, but not so critical about what the world says? Why is it that I place the word under subjection of what the world says it should be rather than put the world under subjection of what the word says it should be? And you're still trying to figure out this complexity of joy. I'm telling you, until you find your identity in Christ as someone who is sent, as someone who is loved by Christ and chosen for this beautiful eternal mission, this beautiful purpose of his glory, You'll never know this great joy. I need to end. Let me just finish with two kind of practical points that we kind of see. First, joy is only experienced in community. Um, having gone through um, slight depression um, and having um, ministered to others, one of the things that um, we'll tend to do when we're going through a hard time, when we don't have joy, is withdraw. Community. That's a natural inclination. I don't want to deal with other people. I can't deal with other people right now. But um, it's clear that we ought to be in community, both community with God and with others. If you're not in community with God and with others, and they go together. You can't just have community with God and not with others, or with others and not with God. They, they go together, community with God and community with others, then um, you're not going to really be able to come out of that. Read verse 23 really quickly. I and them, and you and me, Jesus talking about uh, talking to God, that they may become perfectly one, one community, one, oneness, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So this community of love, we got to be each other. And here's the thing, you know, um, maybe you are that person of joy, but you don't want to be with downers. You're like, oh, man, that person is always like, whatever. Well, God didn't bless you with joy so that you could keep it to yourself. But maybe God bless you with this amazing joy so that you can enter into other people's lives, right? So maybe you're on the other side. We need to seek out these people who are dealing with um, depression and anxiety, unable to find their joy, and be that joy for them. And finally, last point, um, we have to be able to discern the truth from the word, Okay. Like I kind of mentioned before, it's the word that's really elevated here. Jesus is the word. We were learning from John 1, 1 that Jesus is the word. First thing he says, says that they may have fulfilled my joy in themselves. And then right after in verse 14, I've given them your word. So they may have my joy. And then says, I've given them your word. Right? That joy, word, going together. Now, if you don't find joy in the word, then you're, yeah, then you're probably thinking of holy, some, uh, like you just, Holy is something that you just do. It's not who you, what you do, but it's who you are. Remember who you are. And this is your Father's words unto you, the one who loves you, the one who sent his son Jesus Christ to die. And finally, one last note of encouragement of what this joy really allows us to do. Hebrews 12, 2 speaks about this amazing joy that Jesus offers to us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This joy is not dependent upon these temporal right nowness, this Instagram world that we live in, but it's for the eternal. And as long as we understand that and receive that eternal identity we have in Christ, we will be able to find joy in this world. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have come into this world. You are sent that we may know who you are, sent that we may know your amazing love for us. And you showed it by dying on the cross where we substituted you with ourselves as God, you were able to substitute um, yourself in our place for our sins. May we live in this world filled with joy, a joy everlasting that only you can provide. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.